0: Thank <laughs> Good evening, everyone, and welcome to a very special episode of Scotonomics. Now, we were so lucky to be able to spend some time again with this fantastic contributor. We'll tell you a little bit more once Kieran joins us. But this is our second show of three during COP26. And this really is an absolutely fantastic episode. It's one of the most detailed 50 minutes I've ever spent uh, with one of our economists. It's fantastic. I'm really, really looking forward to you watching it. I really hope you enjoy it. Before we get to the video, I'd like to introduce my co-host, as always, Karen Van Sweden. Hi, Karen. How are you doing? Hi, William. Hi, everyone. Uh, anything exciting happening today uh, that you wanted to mention?
1: You, I think the most exciting thing is COP26. There's definitely a lot of excitement around that. And I think Glasgow is, is it, I think I get the impression on the whole that Glasgow's enjoying having all these uh, very famous people being in the city. That's my impression, anyway, on the radio. <laughs> Yeah, so, it's quite
0: nice. I, I, think, I think I saw um, Leonardo DiCaprio and Mary Hill, I think, today, which just a, a, <laughs> a phrase I thought I would I, I would never say. Um, what I thought was quite interesting today is I've been watching a little bit of, um, kind of Sky News and a little bit of BBC just to see how they're covering it. And I must say, they're both doing a fantastic job. And it made me think, wouldn't this be good if this was what the news was like all of the time? in the sense that they had a correspondent from the Maldives talking about the potential of it going underwater, and they had someone from India talking about the difficulties of moving away from coal. I thought, this is what the news should be. This is how it would be so much more in the public consciousness if we covered this stuff. And this is the news, and this is going to be the main news story for you know at least a generation to come. So the broadcasters can do it. They can do it really, really well. It's just a shame when you know that in 10 days' time they're going to be off doing all the other normal stuff that's not really important. So, yeah, I thought that was really interesting. And I did see the interview with the UK Environment Minister um, who who kind of, like, tutted and, and said that um, India really should be... Uh, sorry, um, uh, yeah, India really should be doing better than 2070 for its net zero. And it just... I, I remember there was a figure somewhere, and I thought, how much was it that we took... From India during um, colonialism. And I found it today, it was $35 trillion. And I thought, I bet you they would get to net zero a lot quicker if we gave them some, if not all of that money back. So just an unbelievable hypocrisy. And and my final point on COP26 so far is that there's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a royal family there standing talking about what has to be done for climate, there's world leaders. There And, you know, there's people like Jeff Bezos there. So I think that's a huge problem at the moment, which which hopefully uh, we can go over. So I've managed to watch a little bit of it today. I also edited the video with Fidel today and um, it was incredible what he was saying compared to what I was hearing from the leaders. Um, and the other people at COP26 was just completely different and I really feel like it's Fidel's voice that we need to hear and it's the voice of the global south and I'm so pleased to be able to bring this to the audience tonight.
1: The other thing that I'd maybe like to put across to our audience as far as emissions going from these larger countries what our audience have to bear in mind is emissions per capita. You know, this is what you really need to bear in mind is emissions per capita. Actually, worldwide, I think the Australians have actually got the highest emissions per capita. So, yeah, this is this is a really important point. And William, I should let you know that actually I had a, a, an email today that I will be on COP26 TV with George Monbiot tomorrow with the Pay to Pollute campaign. I forgot about that.
0: <laughs> oh, fantastic. Make sure you <laughs> drop him a Scottonomics business card. Um, it would be absolutely fantastic to get him on. I'm sure you can work your charm. Um, to, to get him on. And if he doesn't, he's probably really, really busy. Anyway, away from George and over to someone who I think has at, at least has got as much to say on the environment as Fidel Kabu. Would you like to do a little introduction for the show tonight, Kieran?
1: Yes, absolutely. So Fidel Kabu, Professor Fidel Kabu, is an Associate Professor of Economics at, Den- at Denison University in Ohio. And he's also President of the Global Institute for Sustainable Sustainable prosperity. So, um, welcome Fidel Kaboob onto Scotonomics.
0: Fidel, thanks very okay. so much for joining us again on Scotonomics. Now, the first question I wanted to ask you was that to have any chance of staying between 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees above pre-industrial levels, the target set by the Paris Agreement, the global south cannot follow the same trajectory as the global north, that being growth powered by fossil fuels. Would you agree with that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you for for having me again on on the programme. Um, so there's there's this myth that developing countries and the global south in general has been pursuing the same development path as as the global north, and that same development path requires the extraction of fossil fuels and and kind of economic growth driven by by a, a fossil fuel economy. There's there's a couple of things that are wrong with that narrative. Uh, number one is that the economic model that is being used in the global south is actually not the same. As the economic development model used by the Global North. That is to say that the the key weaknesses of the economies of the Global South uh, have to do with the lack of food sovereignty, have to do with the lack of energy sovereignty, including for countries who are big oil exporters like Nigeria, for example, or Mexico, or even Saudi Arabia, Um, and has to do with the type of industrialization that the Global South has been pursuing over the last several decades relative to the type of uh, industrialization that the global north has adopted. Um, So I'll I'll give you a a brief description of of each. For example, as soon as developing countries became independent from former colonies, um, when you look at pre-independence, they used to be the breadbasket of the global north, big agricultural producers and so on. As soon as they became independent... Uh, the European countries uh, introduced strategic agricultural polity, policies to build the the EU food sovereignty system via the CAP uh, model, CAP, which is the common agricultural policy, uh, to secure uh, food sovereignty for Europe. The same in the US, the same in Japan, the same in uh, Australia and so on. All the countries of the global north have uh, a very strategic food security system, and, and this is not... Me making this up, this is very clear in all the international trade negotiations uh, from the GATT agreements and, and beyond. It used to be very clearly stated that we have free trade in everything but arms and farms, weapons and, and farms. So it's a very clear strategy from, from early on. Uh, so that as a result, developing countries that used to have a substantial agricultural production system now um, lost access to European markets because of that uh, trade barrier that Europe and the U.S. and other countries imposed. And as a result, their farmers um, went out of business. And a lot of them ended up moving to where the jobs would be, which is in the bigger cities, coastal cities, where there's tourism, where there's manufacturing, and so on. And that was pretty convenient because that's the period when the European, uh, American, and the global north in general was... Uh, outsourcing the more obsolete technologies and industries and the lower value added yes. manufacturing and units to the global south, because okay, there is abundant labor, unskilled I'm labor, sorry, cheaper up. labor okay. uh, and a kind of global okay. race to the bottom in terms of labor standards, environmental standards okay. and so on. So what used to be a core labor force okay. in agricultural okay. sectors and the global uh, south are now working class people uh in the manufacturing uh, industries but they're specializing now in the low value added content of manufacturing in other words the capital is imported the fuel is imported the intermediate goods are imported the higher value added content components are imported from the global north and the assembly line is established in the global south with very little value added content contributing so now Your core industrialization policy in the Global South is import high-value-added content export low-value-added content. It's a permanent trap. There's no way of getting out of it by accelerating your production. You're just accelerating more of the same. So that's one key trap. The second trap is now you have no food security, no food sovereignty. So you're literally dependent on on food import at global prices that you can't control and are frequently working against you. And now your energy security is compromised because the more tourism you have, the more fuel you have to import, the more food you have to import, the more industrialization and manufacturing you have in the global south, the more fuel you have to import. And when it comes to fuel production and fuel consumption, Even though you might be a big oil producer, you don't actually consume crude oil. You need the refining capacity to get to the gasoline and kerosene and the fuels that are used for electricity production, for transportation, and the petrochemicals used for industrial purposes. All of those things are refined in the global north. And which means you export the crude material, low value added content, and you re-import the higher value-added content, petrochemicals and and refined uh, fuels like gasoline and kerosene and so on. So even as a big oil producer, you're always dependent on those uh, imports. And you essentially can't run an economy without food, without fuel. These are the basic foundations. So you add up these three traps, they translate into structural trade deficits for most developing countries. And when you have a structural trade deficit, What it does systematically is that it applies downward pressure on the value of your currency relative to the dollar, the euro, the British pound and so on. And now you're faced with two choices, very important choices. Choice number one, you do nothing about it and you let the market essentially apply that downward pressure and weaken your currency. And if you do that, everything you import the next morning, whether it's food or fuel or medicine, is going to be more expensive. And you may have food riots the next day, social instability, political instability. Most countries try to avoid that, obviously, by subsidizing food and fuel and medicine and other imports, or more systematically, by borrowing dollars or euros or Japanese yen in order to artificially fix the exchange rate at a reasonable level and avoid the devaluation of the currency. And that starts to build the external debt. And that's how countries lose their monetary sovereignty, their economic sovereignty, and subsequently, they lose part of their political sovereignty because now you have foreign institutions, foreign lenders, telling them what to do about their economy, whether they should be privatizing state enterprises or reducing salaries for government employees or cutting subsidies for health and education and infrastructure. All of those things become determined externally rather than by the democratically elected uh, government uh, or whatever political formation you have, whether it's democratic or not democratic. The point is that it becomes external pressure that sets the national priority uh, for you. So to answer your question, is the global uh, South following the same development path of, of of the global North? Absolutely not. So if it's not working for the global South, and if it's not the same model that actually worked for the global North, then why are we systematically attaching this to a key uh, factor that will actually destroy the planet, which is a fossil fuel-based economy. If anything, it turns out that a more resilient model of economic development, based on this analysis that I just laid out, suggests that developing countries in the global south must invest in renewable energy capacity in order to build energy security domestically and avoid the debt trap. In order to avoid the the lack of food security and lack of food sovereignty, developing countries must invest in sustainable agriculture, not just to lower the carbon footprint and and the use of uh, uh, petrochemicals and fertilizers and all of that. No, because it's a food security issue. So the economic development model that will get those countries out of those traps is fundamentally based on the principles of decarbonizing the economy. So, our goal for fighting climate change is also a goal of changing the engine of economic development uh, and turning it into a more resilient um, model of economic development. And unfortunately, moving into COP26, like the, the previous uh, COP meetings, there's been this uh, segregation of these issues that we focus on, on emissions only based on the existing model of economic development, instead of saying we're not going to be able to reduce emissions and meet those goals unless we also change the engine of economic development, not just in the global north in terms of decarbonizing the grid and transportation, all that, but fundamentally changing the entire extractive economic development model that was colonial. I mean, colonialism was about that. Uh, And the post-colonial model essentially continued the, uh, the, the colonial dependence model, and, 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 and that's where we are today.
0: The, the difference is the, 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 the global north was able to grow by being able to protect its markets, and they were also able to do that with a lot more sovereignty, but they were doing that extensively through burning fossil fuels. Now, you, you said that the global south don't want to do that, but really, are they able to do that? Are they able to generate that economic growth without using fossil fuels? We know we'd like them not to, but are yeah. they actually practically able to do that?
2: Okay, so this is a very good question. Now this leads us into the actual technical aspect of decarbonizing economies and, and so on. And before I answer that, it's, it's important to contextualize how we got here in order to understand how we can move forward. One of the fundamental problems with the, with the COP negotiations, at least the, the attitude that the biggest players uh, have in, in this, which is when I say the biggest players, I mean the biggest uh, polluters uh, globally, that is the US, the EU, and, and China, is that they walk into these negotiations from a, from a national uh, standpoint, not a truly international global standpoint. And it's, and it's fundamentally wrong and dangerous, actually, because when it comes to climate change as a, as a globe, we're either going to float uh, globally or sink globally. It's not going to be like a few countries are going to succeed and beat climate change and the others will, will lose. So as long as we're thinking in terms of national interest and national strategy and national targets uh, in a sort of competitive way against other countries, we're not going to succeed. So we have to find collective solutions. The second point in terms of how we enter into a truly global um, fight against climate change in order to succeed. We have to acknowledge who has contributed the most to this problem. And again, it's primarily the US in terms of uh, emissions since the industrial revolutions, uh, Europe, China comes in later. Uh, so I think the US is uh, something like 25% cumulative contribution to CO2 emissions and other greenhouse gases followed by the EU at about 20-some percent. And then China comes third at 12 or 13% uh, cumulative, but most of that cumulative CO2 emissions came in the last couple of decades, and it's mostly because of its role as a global platform for exports to the global north. So it's, it's very clear where most of the emissions have been historically, and as a result, where most of the responsibility lies. Uh, when it comes to cumulative emissions by the global south we 're talking about you know uh, very small uh, cumulative fraction of something like three to five percent of uh, of cumulative uh, uh, co two emissions responsibility. So we have two things here: we have those who are responsible for the problems uh, is essentially the global north via its own emissions or consumption of emissions produced in China and India and other places. Um, Number two, the countries that are actually on the front line of climate change today are countries of the global south that have not contributed to to this problem. Number three, the technological capabilities needed to accelerate the transition require not only scaling up existing technologies such as solar and wind and geothermal and and, um, uh, construction materials that are more resilient and so on, those technologies happen to be produced by the global north. So the technology is available, and scaling it up and transferring technology to the global south on a rapid scale is extremely important. But existing technology is good, but it's not good enough. It can get us you know, far ahead, but it's not going to fundamentally solve the problem in the long run. Why? Because the extractive... Um, Uh, requirements for raw materials to build the solar panels and wind turbines and all the technology that we have today and the battery technology is going to cause ecological disasters mostly in the global south. So this means that we need substantial investments in material science research, research and development, which happens to be also the, the, the point of strength of the global north with its research and development capabilities, that is even an added responsibility to double down on the research and development capabilities in the global north to find truly sustainable solutions to our climate transition. So the responsibility, the resources uh, uh, are in the hands of countries in the global north, and they must recognize that we're not going to succeed in this unless those resources are marshaled on a global scale via a transfer of technology a transfer of kind of in-kind contributions to developing countries um, within the next 10 years on a rapid scale in order to repair the damage and i underline repairing the damage because the damage has been done primarily by the global north via what we would call climate debt because of over pollution uh, disproportionate pollution by the global north, there's the moral and ethical responsibility to repair uh, the damage. Number two, what we've described earlier in terms of colonial and neocolonial extractive economic development model, that caused massive damage to economies in the global south. And as a result, there is a point, there's an argument to be made here for colonial and neocolonial reparations as in repairing the damage and when i say reparations it doesn't mean simply financial restitution of course there is a financial contribution to be made to repair the damage but it means literally repairing the broken economic infrastructure the broken financial architecture international trade architecture that leads to this constant extraction of wealth and resources from the global uh, from the global uh, south and to Conclude with just one number that your viewers will probably remember beyond this discussion, which is the following. If we separate global south and global north and we net out all financial transactions globally, the latest numbers we we have, we have $2 trillion annually moving from the poorest countries, the global south, to the richest countries. So at this rate, and and this has been accelerating over the last few decades, so it's going to continue on trend essentially moving forward. So with this existing global financial architecture, which is colonial, neo-colonial, extractive, abusive of the global south, if we continue with the existing structure, there is no way we can defeat climate change unless we start reversing those flows via a, a model of global climate and colonial reparations that will systematically transfer resources and technology and and rebuild more resilient economies.
0: Fidel, I think most people would be in agreement with what you've just said. So how is that being reflected at COP at the moment?
2: Uh, well, the intergovernmental panel is not really suggesting uh, uh, fundamental economic development policy changes. Uh, it's just telling us we have a, a big problem that requires decarbonization on a massive scale Um, And it's suggesting that the global north does have the responsibility in taking the lead on on this front. Um, But when it comes to the actual policy action, it's going to be governments who are actually uh, meeting uh, next week to decide how much collectively they agree to to contribute to this uh, uh, transition. And how they will finance it, because financing the transition, most countries will say, we commit our own national budget to do X, Y, Z, and we commit to reduce our emissions. And and sure, the U.S. can do some of that. Europe can do some of that. Japan can do it and, and so on. But then they look at the global south and they say, and you guys do it, too. And good luck. Finding, uh, finding the technology or resources uh, will provide you with something uh, like the Global uh, Climate Fund, which was set up uh, more than 10 years ago and was supposed to have $100 billion in it to help with this transition. So the
0: Global North had pledged to provide, I think it was $100 billion a year by 2020 to poorer countries yeah. to help them cope with climate change. But this still hasn't been achieved. So as I understand it, most of this is still loans, so their loans obviously have to be paid back, I would imagine, right. with interest. So how was this ever supposed to help the global south?
2: Well, I, I don't think it's, uh, it's an effective strategy. I, I looked at the Global Climate Fund website yesterday to see how much was in it, because for a long time it was like 6 or 7 or $8 billion. Well, the good news is that uh, when I looked yesterday, it was $10 billion, uh, not the $100 billion that, that we're supposed to have annually. Uh, But when you take into account that, you know, a a lot of this um, financing is uh, either uh, loans or very small grants that are not at the scale needed. And when it's in the context of a global financial architecture that, you know, contributes 10 billion to the global south for climate uh, action, but sucks two trillion dollars collectively from the global south. We're not going very far. We're just like one step forward and ten steps back uh, every year. So unless we go into these uh, COP uh, negotiations with an understanding that we can't really achieve the the necessary CO two emissions unless we have a global perspective, not a national perspective, on how we're going to achieve those goals. Who's going to provide the technology? Who's going to provide the financing, especially in the global South, I don't think we're going to go very far, which is why we've been missing the targets for the last uh, several years of very serious uh, concern about climate change. When you think about the the initial concerns about climate change, 1972, the Stockholm uh, Stockholm, uh, Conference, that's 50 years of knowing that we have a problem. And in the last 20 years in particular, Uh, We've known that this problem is really serious. And in the last 10 years in particular of COP uh, negotiations and so on, we've known that this is an emergency, a crisis situation. And yet, year after year, we're falling behind in terms of targets. We're on track right now to uh, extract and and burn 120% more Uh, in terms of uh, CO2 emissions and fossil fuel uh, extraction than what we should be aiming for.
0: We, We know that the majority of these emissions are coming from the global north. So is there anything that we're discussing or likely discussing to call that will in some way kind of represent that this is historic emissions that have been caused, caused, uh, caused by the global north and that although effects of climate change are being experienced across the planet, it's populations that are vulnerable to poverty that face yeah. the greatest exposure to climate change.
2: No, they, they typically try to avoid the historical record and focus on our achievements today. Uh, and when you look at current achievements, the, the US is not as big of a polluter as it used to be. Uh, And the U.S. is actually committed to substantial uh, decarbonization of the economy. Uh, And it just so happens that the economics works for the U.S., not only because it has the technology and the financial resources to do it, but because green technology is actually beating fossil fuel technologies on on the economic front. Uh, They're getting cheaper, more efficient, uh, lower cost of electricity production. So it's a no brainer. To, to transition, and it happens to create a lot of domestic jobs that will boost the U.S. economy. So it's common sense that the Biden administration is moving in that direction and committing to it. But it's thinking from a U.S. perspective, and it's still thinking that the rest of the world needs to figure it out. Maybe we'll help them with some technology. Maybe we'll build bigger green industries here in the U.S. and export to them, right? Maybe we'll give them a discount, but it's, that's not how we fix climate change. That's still a very individualistic um, uh, kind of approach to a global problem that can't be solved uh, without collective um, uh, you know, problem-solving uh, approach. Yeah.
0: I mean, you've mentioned um, the US there, but I would say that's exactly what's happening in the United Kingdom. Yes, And our Treasury just released a paper about the net zero strategy, and it's still talking about the potential benefits of net zero in terms of, gro- in terms of growth, by being able to export our technology and still be able to bring that sure. back into growth. And it's all been framed within this neoliberal economy that we've had for the last 40 years. Do we need to completely reframe the way we're looking at an economy if we really want to target climate change?
2: Absolutely. I would say not just neoliberal, but it's really neocolonial. If you look at the broader EU, especially the German mm-hmm. approach to decarbonizing, uh, the, the European uh, economy, at least in terms of electricity and energy uh, consumption, it, it, it's, it's geopolitical um, uh, as well in, in, in the sense that the EU wants to become less dependent on Russian uh, gas uh, exports, which is critical for Europe's uh, energy security. So the, the big shift now in, in Europe, led by Germany in, in particular, is investing in green um, sources of electricity production in Africa that includes solar that includes green hydrogen um, as as the way to give europe its, um, uh, its its energy security and less dependence on on russia and in, on the African continent in, in Tunisia and in Morocco and uh, in South Africa and maybe and other places there's now huge commitments to these green hydrogen plants. Um, that that are mostly German investments. But it's really uh, not to the benefit of the African economies. It's not going to give African economies any more energy security than they currently have. It's to use the geographic location that is ideal for producing um, uh, solar energy. And literally in North Africa, in the case of Tunisia and Morocco, uh, laying cables in the Mediterranean to export all the solar energy produced in North Africa to the European market, and then building green hydrogen plants near those uh, those solar farms to produce uh, green hydrogen to be shipped uh, for for the European market. When the Tunisian economy is still dependent on oil and gas imports from 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 other countries, the, the same is true for for Morocco. Morocco is one of the biggest solar producers now and on the continent, and it's all destined for the European market, the, the majority of it. So it's still a form of neocolonialism. It's still the extractive economic development model that I described earlier in the sense that the the land uh, and the workforce is used and on the African continent, the raw materials in the sense of the, the solar energy and, and the wind is used in the African, uh, on the African continent but the final product is for exports. Now, The advantage for a country like Tunisia or Morocco is a little bit of job creation and primarily the export revenues, which means dollars and euros that you generate in order to pay for your external debt, in order to import food, and in order to import fossil fuels for your domestic energy needs. And that's the insane part of this of this uh, neo-colonial extractive model. That it doesn't actually produce any level of food security, uh, energy security in the domestic uh, North African economies. It's literally extractive, but we're putting a, a, a greenwashing layer on it and and, and labelling it uh, the, the new green economy.
1: Uh, the, the broadcaster, David Attenborough, who's 95 now and is still active, he says that the richest nations have in quotations, a moral responsibility to help the poorest. I'm really surprised to hear that the Germans are in North Africa. They're they're using your geography, literally your geography, where the sun hits your countries. uh, And they're not they're not giving you free energy from that. I I find it really shocking, actually.
2: Oh, that's it's not shocking at all. I think it's expected (laughs) because there hasn't been a fundamental shifting in terms of how Europe interacts with with the African continent. This is not to single-handedly kind of point to Germany. There's All other countries in the global north are are doing similar things in different aspects of the economy. It's still extractive. Um, For example, in in Tunisia now, there's this uh, burst of joy that uh, Japan is organizing its next um, uh, African continent conference in Tunisia, and Japan has committed more foreign direct investment in the tunisian economy and it's viewed as as this fantastic you know link to to uh, to a strong economy like japan in addition to our links to europe is going to create you know more jobs and more economic activity but what are the japanese auto companies doing in tunisia they're building plants for tunisian workers to produce cables for cars to produce small parts low value added content to feed into the high-value-added content Japanese industry, so it's it, it's not anything new. It's more of the same. But somehow the perception is that this is uh, this is improvement. This is progress. This is industrialization, because when you see factories with high-tech equipment in it and workers going in and going out and containers coming in and coming out, you see this is progress. This is a industrialization. When it's still part of the same extractive model where you're trapped into low value added content and the global north is taking advantage of, uh, of the, and, and you're not building any kind of uh, national security. If anything, we have to import more energy to run those Japanese factories. We have to race to the bottom to compete with Morocco, with Algeria, with other countries in the region who would like to have those factories. Instead of Tunisia, so we're not going anywhere if we're constantly trapped in the into this model. So it's Japan, it's Germany, it's France, it's the UK. Everybody is following the same uh, model.
0: That, that, that's fascinating to, to think that the it's the method that's changed, um, but the model is still very much the same when it comes right.
2: to extraction. So what the the type of economic development model that we need to be thinking about is. Uh, either a national or regional resilience framework, where you have blocks of countries, depending on the size, depending on the geography, thinking strategically about how do we keep this region resilient and stable in terms of its food security, in terms of energy security, um, and in terms of its economic stability. Uh, And in the global south, this is going to be extremely important because a lot of the global south countries are small, In in terms of population, which means they can't really industrialize. Uh, you, You can't really hit the economies of scale that you need in an industrial development when you have a market of only 10 million consumers or even 20 million consumers. But when you have a market of 100 million plus, then you can have an industry that can hit economies of scale. You can have multiple companies that can compete and, and provide the efficiency and customer service and all the benefits of competition you need. But the, in the current model, we have small, tiny countries competing with large industrial powerhouses in the global, south, in the global north, and there's no way they can industrialize and reach that level of high-value-added contribution that multinationals in the global north can, can achieve. So by design, we end up with smaller manufacturing units that are part of the larger global supply chain, owned and controlled and managed by the Global North. So when you have strategic partnerships in the Global South, maybe with contribution from the Global North too, in terms of technology and research and development and and key um, uh, components that will help in this transition, but the, the core should be Global South focused, starting with the basic pillars that any economy, any region needs in order to be resilient which is food and energy. Um, And you can start with the next levels of manufacturing that is needed in particular parts of the world. For example, water filtration systems, water storage systems, uh, infrastructure materials that are needed to build a more resilient infrastructure that can manage uh, the the new world that we're going to live in, that we already live in that is driven by periods of droughts, followed by microbursts of of heavy rains and and storms that the current infrastructure in the global north isn't able to handle, let alone the infrastructure in the global south. Uh, So manufacturing the materials needed to build the infrastructure in the global south and doing it in the global south with local skills and research and development on a regional scale allows you to build a different kind of manufacturing that's not export-oriented, but it's resilience-oriented for regional economies.
1: The the story you describe, and it's one that I'm familiar with, is that fundamentally, especially the, the countries in Africa as well, they are fundamentally and have been predated upon by the global north. And I I hear people saying, you know, well, you know, what about China? There's this whataboutery we refer to in political circles here. What yes. aboutery? You know, what about the politics in these areas, Tunisia, Morocco, Algeria? Are they, the politicians really thinking about this and thinking about the way that they, their countries are being predated upon and really thinking about what they can do about it? And how do the people or certainly maybe people that you know, how do they feel about that?
2: Very good question. So uh, it's, it's very important to remember that the African continent, for example, wasn't colonized because it was poor. It was colonized specifically because it was extremely rich, and it's still extremely rich. So that's that's something very important. But it was, you know, it was made weak and dependent via colonial neocolonial extraction. Now, the the biggest effort that I think I'm in, I'm involved in, uh, and I think you're hearing it in this conversation is to raise awareness in the Global South that the existing model isn't actually working for us in the the Global South. And to uh, rally kind of popular support, um, policy thinking, and political leadership that actually recognizes that the existing model is counterproductive, that it's actually the legacy of colonial and neocolonial. You you hear some of, sort of populist rhetoric related to it, but it's not really uh, truly understanding the extent to which this model is destruct- destruct- disruptive. Um, you hear politicians, for example, in Tunisia, we're going through this uh, political crisis right now, where the uh, populist president who was elected specifically because the population didn't want the existing corrupt uh, political parties and parliament and all that, um, he fundamentally believes that if we get rid of corruption, the, the corrupt political parties that have ruled over uh, the, the the economy, the the lobbying groups, the uh, the monopolists, uh, the the you know traffickers, and and the economy, if we just cleanse the system of corruption, everything will be fine, right? Because we'll, then we'll have tourism, we'll have more exports, we'll be able to extract more phosphate and ship it more efficiently. And that's really the danger, that even, even the, the, the populist kind of less corrupt and more kind of nationalist, patriotic, full of uh, rhetoric about sovereignty, they too truly believe that there is nothing fundamentally wrong with the extractive model of economic development. It is just corruption and mismanagement that produce these problems. And I'm trying to argue that even if you get rid of the corruption, you have the the most transparent political system and economic system. the model is still a failure. obviously africa's um the global south relationship with with europe and and the global north historically has been you know so so deep. but now with the rise of china as a as an economic superpower and as a, as an economic superpower that's stretching its economic and potentially geopolitical influence in, in the African continent and Latin America and, and Asia and Central Asia as well, uh, there's more concern now about uh, a transition to uh, a, a new form of neocolonial uh, relationship with, with China this time, uh, dominating the, the global south with so-called debt traps and, and so on. So there is there's a lot of concern, but most of that concern is coming from the global north, who has... Uh, that has exercised the same relationships and produced the the debt traps for the global south. Produced the the neglect in in their regional um, uh, neighborhoods. Uh, that is true for Australia and and the and the Pacific. That is true for Europe and and the African continent. For the U.S. and, and Latin America. So, if you're a country of the global south that is trapped in a in a debt trap and have very little capacity to create jobs, to continue investing in infrastructure, especially climate-resilient infrastructure. And the global north is saying, the only thing we can provide you is going to be loans and more of the same kind of uh, colonial, neo-colonial extractive relations. But then China shows up and says, we'll provide the technology, we'll build it for you, Uh, we'll provide the financing. You don't have to you know, worry about payments anytime soon. We'll figure it out later. No strings attached, you know, at least in, in the beginning. Which one would you choose? The, the, the Global North model or the new Chinese Belt and Road Initiative type of relationships? If you're desperate, it's very likely that you're going to move to the, a relationship with the, with the Chinese uh, Belt and Road Initiative. What I've been uh, talking about in terms of this global kind of balance of power uh, shift that's, that's happening as we speak, it's very important for countries in the global south to avoid running away from one uh, neo colonial relationship into another one. Um, because you have to recognize that most you know, superpowers, all the big countries in, in the world, have a long term strategic uh, plans 50 to 100 years ahead that is true for china for the us for the eu and 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 beyond the countries of the global south are so busy trying to put out fires left and right worrying literally worrying about will the government be able to pay salaries at the end of the month that's how far ahead the thinking is and if we remain in that position then the larger countries who have long term strategic plans are going to design their plans and as a result their relationship with countries in the global south accordingly they're going to be kind of a piece of the puzzle in the big map that they're drawing for themselves so it's important for countries in the global south individually and especially collectively in regional blocks to think about where do we want to be in 50 years in terms of our resilience in terms of key areas of Economic development, food security, energy security. What are the big goals that we want to achieve? And then read the global geopolitical map. What do the Americans want? What do the Europeans want? What do the Chinese want? And then find a way to use your economic diplomacy to get the most of your agenda achieved via strategic cooperation with the Chinese, with the Japanese, with the Europeans, with the Americans, but on your own terms, for your own national strategy for resilience, not based on what the U.S. wants or what China wants. If anything, the, fight that the, the, the fact that there is a global power struggle between Europe, the U.S. on one side, and China on the other side can actually work in your favor if you actually know how to use it and, and know how to use it in, in a good sense of the term of getting more achieved. And when it comes to the interest of the global north, actually, if you want to look at it from a global north perspective versus Chinese, you know, the rise of China and, and its uh, uh, colonial influence, wouldn't it be better from a US perspective, from a European perspective, from an Australian perspective, that small developing countries are self-sufficient, resilient, not in a debt trap, so they don't have to depend On China or on Russia or on the US or anybody. It's in everybody's interest for the sake of stability to have countries strong, resilient, independent, so they don't have to be kind of, uh, so they don't have to compromise their political independence and their political sovereignty because they're desperate for foreign aid or for loans or for technology transfers and so on. So that's really. My my message, and I'm working as hard as I can (laughs) to deliver this to as many leaders in in the global South, because I I think it it benefits both countries in the global South and also countries today who who talk about this. What about China? What about China? What about China? Stay with us. Uh, Well, if if you abuse me and neglect me for the last 30 years that I'm so desperate that I have to go uh, find another neo-colonial relationship, then... Mm -hmm. You know, you you should accept part of the blame and you should help me become more resilient if you want me to stay independent of uh, external influence, whether it's yours or the Chinese or the American or the Japanese.
0: Well, well, that's a wonderful geopolitical look at that. And and you mentioned that kind of debt trap. And, and that's what I'd really like to kind of cover next is that, you know, um, a week before COP26, more than 300 civil society organizations sent an open letter to world leaders demanding COP26 Urgently commit to finance on loss and damage. Now, the the, pro- the projected economic cost of loss and damage by twenty thirty is estimated to be between two hundred ninety and five hundred eighty billion US dollars in developing countries alone. Now, so can we discuss this idea of reparations for the damage done to the earth system by the global north?
2: Yeah, uh, it's it's actually very important to uh, distinguish between the framework of uh, climate reparations and climate debt that I mentioned earlier versus the loss and damage uh, framework, which is much mm-hmm. na- narrow, much more narrow and and specific. The, if, if we're thinking of climate debt, we're we'll be talking trillions when we're we'll talking about historical reparations and and all that. The loss and damage uh, framework is so far the the best we could achieve within the within the cops uh, uh, the, the the cop uh, conference uh, framework because it it ignores historical damage and it focuses on the future damage that will happen with climate change so it's it's really built on um on a kind of a insurance policy framework right uh, the the global north will commit to ensure that if there is a storm that damages your, your infrastructure, we'll step in and help you rebuild. Uh, because that storm is, is uh, those storms and those droughts and those events are increasingly tied to climate change. And we have sort of a moral responsibility to help you uh, deal with it. So it's really about the future potential um, uh, climate events that will hurt countries in the, in the global South. Uh, yeah, 200 and some billion dollars sounds like a big number, but it's nothing in the bigger scheme of things. If we really look at the the larger historical uh, cumulative emissions, the, the the climate debt concept, we'll be talking about at least two to three trillion dollars a year worth of reparations of existing damage. And the reparations is not just financial contributions to say, well, we, we hurt you, so here's money, good luck, and see you later. It's about building and rebuilding economies and infrastructure so that in the future, those, uh, negative, the negative effects of climate events, whether it's droughts or, or storms or, or whatever it is, those economies will be resilient enough to withstand those, uh, those uh, shocks that we'll be facing in, in the future. So, uh, yes, loss and damage framework is helpful, but it's a tiny, tiny, small step in the, in the right direction. It's like we're, we're dealing with a forest fire and we're fighting it with water pistols. The, that's how I would describe it. Um, it's, it's helpful. I mean, it's important to get that commitment at a minimum, right, in mm-hmm. COP26. Um, but my, my dream for COP27 is to go way beyond just, you know, could you please uh, promise to, to help us fix the damage next year when we get the next storm. Uh, that's helpful, but I, need, we, I think we need to be much bolder if we're really going to, uh, to achieve this. And, and much bolder means a commitment, an actual commitment to phasing out fossil fuels and building the alternative uh, economy with a just transition for fossil fuel workers and for other workers that will be displaced in, in this massive uh, reorganizing of the global economy.
0: What's your thoughts for and, and your expectations um, for COP this year, and as we look ahead to COP 27 next year?
2: Yesterday we had a, a webinar with my colleagues on ESGX, and we called it uh, "Cops and Robbers," and, and the question was, who's winning in, in in this cops or the or the robbers, the the extractive industries or the or the sustainability framework? And and my answer was for for COP 26. Is that, you know, the cops are not winning yet, but the robbers are, are definitely on, on watch, maybe on the run uh, to some extent. My, my hope is that uh, we'll, we'll have a firm commitment to uh, the loss and damage framework with not just empty promises, but with actual financing um, and maybe a combination of financing and technology transfer and actually building resilience so that we avoid the damage as opposed to waiting for the damage to happen and then saying, well, sorry about the damage. Here's a little bit of money to rebuild. Um, my hope is that we'll be able to, to push the conversation beyond national interest and national boundaries and national commitments and truly shift the conversation uh, in, a, in, a, in a global perspective, because that will lay the groundwork for a much more ambitious COP27. Um, I'm, I'm not very optimistic that the U.S., China, and, and the EU are ready for that, and, and that's why it's very important for the rest of the world to organize as a bloc with a coherent framework that pushes for an alternative agenda. Um, we've been divided for far too long, and if we in the Global South don't understand that we're either going to sink or float collectively, it's not going to be national interest that, uh, that's going to you know, save us then our bloc would be much more powerful in terms of its, uh, its cohesion, but it must have a, a comprehensive agenda that's, uh, that's coherent enough to really shift the terms of the debate uh, in these climate negotiations. I don't think it's going to happen in, in COP26. My, my hope is that the next 12 months uh, will lead us into Cairo um, uh, next year with, with, a, with a very different kind of uh, framework for for negotiations and much more ambitious uh, targets.
0: Well, well, you probably won't be aware of this because it's just happened in the UK. Our UK Chancellor has um, reduced air passenger duty to encourage more people to fly nationally and internationally. Uh, That's the week before COP. So if that's any kind of indication on how the UK government
1: is
2: approaching
0: the negotiations, I think we've got to look forward to COP27 being much more successful than COP26.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is this is actually a very good example of how most governments have reacted to this COVID crisis. The COVID crisis was, was an opportunity, in a sense, to change the engine of the economy and, and build new resilience moving forward. But what we've done is keep the same engine, and we've been struggling to crank it up and restart it again. And, and what your prime minister has done is essentially saying, well, that, that engine of the economy that stalled during the COVID crisis, let's figure out a way to crank it up and encourage more people to, to accelerate it. And that's just um, that's the sad reality that we're in. That we're what, a, what a missed opportunity.
1: Yeah, I mean, I certainly don't feel like um, Britain as a whole unit can move forward unless Scotland gains independence. I think that if we uh, can govern ourselves, we can demonstrate a way that's much better. Um, And I think that, you know, hopefully that would then encourage people south of the border to really realise that they've been conned in lots of ways um, for the past 40 years by neoliberalism. Um, I think it's very clear that the global north owes a debt to the global south. I think that should be clear to everyone by now. Um, I think it's really incumbent on uh, everyone in the world to start thinking about us also being in a partnership, as far as the, the climate crisis is concerned, and that we should be thinking about our real resources and sharing them across the world. I mean, there was a, there was a guy who used to come into my brother as a barber shop, and he was a plumber, and he used to spend his holidays working on sanitation systems in Africa. That's what he did on his holidays. And when you look at, for example, China has recently just knocked down, I think, three or four high-rises that were half-built and they did nothing. Those engineers, those building engineers, would have been far better working somewhere else. And I think, really, the COP really is a place for, for world leaders to really start thinking about their real resources and what are you doing with your real resources for the sake of humanity,
0: that's, that's what we need. It'll be interesting to see what we get. Fidel, thanks so much for for joining us on our um, road to COP26. It was incredible getting your geopolitical view of what hopefully will be done, but certainly what needs to be done uh, at COP26 and into the future. Thanks again for your time.
2: Thank you. It's, a, it's always a pleasure. Thanks for having me back on the show.
1: Thanks, Fidel. Thank you.
2: Thank you.
0: And where well <laughs> uh, what did, what did was you think scene. what did you think of that then? I mean, the range of things that he covered and the perspective that he had um was was just incredible, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think uh, really important points that he made, for example, were cumulative emissions. Um really important point for a lot of people to bear in mind, as I said at the start of the before the interview, you know, you need to think about per capita emissions as well um and uh please people stop going on about um china china and what about um the continued extraction of resources from the global south by the global north um i knew about that before um through the tax justice network and um that the resilience that um could be built would be much better for political stability i think these are really important points
0: yeah absolutely uh, and and you know that's picked up at least three of the main Themes. I think I'd, I'd love to hear from the audience who are still with us how different that perspective of the cop negotiations was and if it's really given them any kind of insight into the discussions that are, that are taking place because it did for me I, I really liked um Fidel's analogy of, of that um you know it's like trying to put out a a, a forest fire with with water pistols you know and I, I've said before uh, this kind of um image of flicking pee at a charging rhino